Welcome to ASHTA Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials testing and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Now, here's our host, Brian Johnson. Welcome to Ashto Resource q and I'm Brian Johnson. With me is Kim Swanson. Hello, Brian. Hey, everybody. Yeah, so Kim is our producer and co-host, as you probably know. But today we also have another guest. It is Joe Williams, one of the senior quality analysts from the Ashto Accreditation Program. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Morning, Brian. Morning, Kim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we brought Joe here today because we wanted to talk about something that he's really involved with as a member of the ASHTO accreditation program, and that is the management of the proficiency sample rules of participation and some of the other associated policies. Joe, how did you get into this? Um, I think I got into this just with my interest in the PSP program as a whole. I've always enjoyed going back there and um, assisting with the production of the different samples. Actually, after the birth of my first daughter, I was still uh, an assessor and I wasn't traveling for a little while after she was born. So I helped out a lot back in the PSP warehouse and really, really kind of got an interest in it. And then when I came over to the QA position to the app team, you know, I continued that interest. I still volunteer back there a lot, but I also jumped on to help streamline these rules a little bit, you know, to try to make them more understandable, not only to to customers, but to the QAs themselves. So that's really where the interest started. All right. So why when when somebody signs up for the accreditation program or enrolls in proficiency samples, there are expectations about what they need to perform and how what ratings they should get. The ASHTO Accreditation Procedures Manual lays out some of the rules. Why can't we just have all the rules in that document so that everything is in one place? Well, mostly because um, the current rules document, well, there's two documents. There's the rules document and the uh, prerequisites for accreditation document. And those total 35 pages. So if we were to put that all in the app procedures manual, that document would be become a novel. And really, that's not really the purpose of the app procedures manual to, to really dive in to each policy that we have as a whole company, because then that would be so long and so tedious for somebody to go to to find what they're looking for. So instead, that document is sort of guidelines, general guidelines, and then we have individual policies and procedures that go more in depth on the guidelines from, from the procedures manual. Now, in addition to being co-host of this podcast and producer, Kim Swanson also manages a lot of our online content because she is the manager of communications at Ashto Resource. So Kim, I have a question for you. Okay. We don't usually do this. No. Uh, but my question for you is, where can people find these things? Joe is talking about we have all these policies and procedures on our website that uh, augment the app procedures manual. How can somebody find these documents? All of our policies and procedures documents are currently in the reuniversity section of our website. And that includes 
the app procedures manual and all of these other documents. But you can also find them by going to the AASHTO accreditation page on our website. And then there's a link there to see all the related documents. So you can find them a couple different places or it's the same place, but you can get to it in a couple different places. All right, Joe, uh, back to you on the proficiency sample policy. So, so we have this policy that's posted on the website mm -hmm. and it, it is like you mentioned, it's a really long document. How do you use this thing? Well, probably the, the easiest way to do it would be to, to open it up and search for a certain test method you're, you're looking for. Just use the PDF search function. And if that test method is in any sort of sample, it, it'll, it'll come up. And basically, the reason it's so long is because we do have a pretty robust proficiency sample program with a good many samples. And basically, this document has a description of each sample, the the test methods that are included in each sample and also any sort of weird little what we call rules or caveats that could be in, included for for a certain test something like maybe even though a, a test is included in a in a sample maybe we don't actually use that for accreditation purposes or maybe we only use certain aspects of a test for accreditation purposes so really that's that's the best way to do this is just to, to kind of search for a test method that to see if you need to be enrolled in a specific program for that. The other thing, too, is it can help the labs to try to figure it out. But but the labs through the uh, accreditation process, especially th through assessments, they'll be made aware if they are required to be enrolled in a certain program as well. So it's not just we provide this document and expect a lab to go in and look at it and understand it. There are other systems in place to make sure that labs are properly enrolled. I'm going to jump in just so our listeners can know that the actual title of the document is AASHTO Accreditation Policy on PSP Participation. And so when you open up the document, there's a little title page with kind of instructions on how to use it. But then if you go down to the meat of it, you'd have the scope and then a table with the AASHTO and ASTM test name standards that are included in that. And then there's a column for um, a policy number. And then below that is what those numbers mean. So that gives you the details. And so that kind of just yep. breaks down how that works for the, is this is not a visual medium <laughs> to kind of show people how that how that is and describe it. And I want to get into some of these little caveats and rules for a second. And it can be, there, there's so many in this document that it can be kind of confusing for people. Uh, one, one question I think people might ask themselves right now is, why are we not just requiring every single test in every, or in this relevant sample to be performed by the laboratory and, and expect them to receive satisfactory results? So let's use aggregate, for example. If somebody's getting the aggregate samples and they're an aggregate testing laboratory, why shouldn't they be expected to run every single aggregate test? Well, I mean, the, it, it comes down to accreditation. So, for example, in the aggregate sample, one that we have here, uncompacted void content, T304 and C1252. Some labs are accredited for that, but other labs aren't accredited for that. So if a, if a lab isn't running that test, honestly, they, they really don't care about their proficiency in that because if it's not something they're performing, then they probably don't really care. Now, a flip side to that is perhaps they do care about how they may do on that test, but they're not accredited for it. 
they could submit data for that and and suffer no consequence or impact for receiving low ratings or anything like that. But yeah, just to get back to to your original question, it it, it all just comes down to is a lab performing that test and if not then not only do they not really need to have their proficiency looked at but but from a program standpoint we really don't want to look at their proficiency because if they're not doing it on a regular basis we we don't want somebody who's to just throw in data in there who doesn't really do it and who doesn't really know how to do it yeah and that is a question we get sometimes is there any harm let's stick with the uncompacted voids topic. If I'm a laboratory and the only test I perform on aggregate is I run the gradation, I don't do uncompacted voids, but let's say I'm thinking about starting to do this. Is there any harm in me performing that? Because I might get zero ratings because I'm I'm new to it. I'm not accredited for it, but I want to start seeing how I do. Is there any risk to my accreditation if I start doing that? No, there's not any risk to the current accreditation and even the the future accreditation for seeking a certain test method. Say they want to pick up that test method on their next assessment, we won't even look at their previous proficiency sample ratings. I mean, we'll look into if they were previously accredited for that method, but if they weren't, we don't hold any negative proficiency sample ratings against them. We won't start looking at their ratings for a certain test until two rounds after their accreditation post for a certain test method. So there's no negative impact for submitting data for a test method that for which they're not accredited. Okay, now if I'm a new laboratory to the program completely, when am I expected to enroll in proficiency samples that are relevant to the scope of accreditation that I'm trying to get accredited for? The main deadline to enroll is before the accreditation can be granted. So if if a laboratory, a new laboratory is not enrolled in anything, the assessment takes place, there will be notes in the report that the laboratory isn't enrolled. And they can wait until that's the last thing they do is to enroll in those programs. But accreditation for test methods that are included in a program can't be granted until that enrollment takes place. Okay, now I've got another specific question for you. We're going to go over to asphalt mixtures. Sure. Uh, mixed design samples for a moment on uh, the hot mix gyratory design there is a rule about the air voids calculation mm-hmm. so if my laboratory is accredited for air void determinations why am i not required to receive satisfactory ratings on that test on on a sample there oh, are I'm, other I'm, samples that include air voids i sure. noticed it's not in the gyratory design Sure, uh, sure. Do I have so, to enroll in, in Marshall or Veeam to get that? So in that specific one, no. And that's because the gyratory standard itself includes not a determination of air voids, but a way to calculate the percent of the maximum specific gravity that has been reached in that compaction process of the gyratory itself. Now, the gyratory sample does include test methods that are required for determining air voids, and that would be bulk specific gravity and the maximum specific gravity. And some laboratories, even if they only have gyratory accreditation, will still want to maintain accreditation for T209 and D2041, but they don't have to participate in that sample for that. There is no participation in that sample for that. And they don't have to enroll in another sample just to perform air voids. 
Thank you, everybody. We have a special guest with us. My my youngest daughter, Tori, is homesick today, so we may hear her a little bit in the back room, background moving forward. Hello. Welcome to the podcast, Tori. Is this, this is her first podcast, I assume. This is her first podcast. Do you want to say hi? No, we're going to hide instead. Okay. All right. Well, you know, this is one of the things that we're going to miss out on when we're back in the office, right? But we are we are still we are still working remotely at least part time here at Ashto Resource. We we've got all these specific rules, so th th this is helpful. Then, so I know that because we what we just talked about with the gyratory sample that helps me if I'm trying to figure out what I need to do because I can find that right there because that might be a question that I had about enrollment, and if I have any other questions about enrollment policies or rules and I'm looking at this document and I'm confused, where can I find more information? Honestly, you can find more in, in, information by contacting your general quality analyst for your state. Uh, that's listed at the top of a portal, portal page. Or you could contact me, or really you could contact any quality analyst or app employee, because we're all very familiar with these tables, we're familiar with these documents, and we could easily answer any questions that you might have. One of the other questions that probably comes up sometimes for people is when they get repeated consecutive low ratings on a sample or a test result on a sample and they are issued a suspension notification from the ASHTO accreditation program and that includes more test methods than just the one that they received low ratings on. Why might that be, and how could I find information out on the website about what the rationale was for that type of suspension? Or, well, let me let me actually use revocation as the example. I think that might be a better example because there, I think most of the prerequisite rules for ASHTO accreditation are based on revocation, not suspension. So let's get into that a little bit. And that kind of jumps us over into the policy on prerequisite standards required for accreditation. These rules in this one and these different caveats in this one used to actually be in the PSP participation document as well. But over time, that document was becoming very convoluted with all kinds of different things. And really, these prerequisite things applied not to not just PSP participation or revocations from PSP participation, but also any kind of revocation from any accreditation event, uh, whether it be um, PSP, whether it be an, an OSA or any other kind of thing going on. And to be honest, though this document is an outward facing document on our website, it's really a tool for the quality analysts to use when they're performing any kind of revocation. And when the laboratory receives any kind of notification of revocation that would also lead to a withdrawal of another test method, there is a link in that notification, which then references then to this document to just kind of help explain, okay, I was revoked for, let's jump back to the air voids one. My, my laboratory was revoked for bulk specific gravity. Why was air voids withdrawn? And that notification references them to this document with the different rules on on why that would that might happen so years ago we did have these rules all combined into one and splitting it out due to the assessment tie-in i think was a good idea especially since a lot of these rules are never going to show up you know you're never going to need to use them for proficiency sample rating issues uh, for example one of the 
biggest prerequisite rules that I see in here is associated with a concrete standard. Uh, that would be M201C511 on curing facilities. That affects a whole slew of tests in concrete, cement, masonry, and poslin. So that when there is a revocation for that standard, it can really apply to all of those standards. And even a suspension could apply to all of those. Uh, so it's a, it's a good way for people to see, you know, laboratories, specifiers, anybody involved with the accreditation or interested in the accreditation program can kind of understand what is going on when they look at this. For those who may be unfamiliar with this, and I just, I don't know if we've actually covered this or not, because we could have, but so in the prerequisite document, the the reason why if you are revoked or suspended for M201C511 and that affects the SLU, right? But is that that's because that standard is referenced in the other standards. Is that correct? And is that why the prerequisite exists? I don't know if we were clear on that. Yeah, that's exactly right, Kim. But basically for so so we'll stick with this cement one. C511 is is a curing standard for curing concrete and cement samples before being tested. It's actually a specification. It's not a standard. And so if that were to be suspended, if there, if a lab's facilities weren't meeting the requirements of, of that standard, that impacts all those other test methods that require the appropriate curing to perform those tests. Okay, so it's not just the ASHTO accreditation program saying that it impacts all these things. They're actually stated in the in the standards that you need to do this one correctly in order to do that one correctly kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and I'd say one other thing, it's not people get confused by this sometimes just because a standard lists something in the reference documents, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a prerequisite. It's it's how that standard is referenced. So some standards will say the equipment is described in this standard that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be accredited for that standard because the equipment's described in it. But if it says perform this test according to this standard, then it becomes a prerequisite. Yeah. Or if the calculation requires that, you know, perform this and include this result, then we, well, depending on the wording, the ISHTO accreditation program has to make a decision on whether it's going to be a prerequisite for that lab to perform or if they just have to have the result. But a lot of that distinction comes in the wording chosen by the standards author. Mm-hmm. Are there any common questions you get about either the prerequisites or the proficiency samples, the rules, Joe? Not so much about the prerequisites. Again, it's like I said, that this document is more of a tool for our program to use. And then we, you know, sort of reference that to labs as, a, as an explanation of what we're doing. Definitely the enrollment and the PSP participation, probably the most common question we get would be when a test method is included in multiple different sample types. One example of that could be bulk specific gravity of asphalt, so T166, D2726. That's actually included in three different proficiency samples. It's in the Marshall, it's in the gyratory, it's in the Veeam sample. So if a laboratory would ask about that, our response would be, well, it depends on what kind of compaction method you you use. That determines what sample program you need to be in. Or if you're not compacting at all, you don't need to be 
in any of them for that test method, but then you will have a designation that you can only test, that you're only accredited to test um, cores, uh, asphalt cores, rather than a compacted sample. That sort of can get a little bit more convoluted moving down the document into the cement programs through CCRL, because for those, since we don't break out different accreditations for material types under the cement physical testing program other than poslin if a laboratory is enrolled in certain samples we kind of have to go off that to assume that's what they're testing and then we'll uh enforce the psp participation based on what they're enrolled in so that one gets a little bit tricky. The, the cement samples do get a little bit tricky and just within the past year or so, we've started to do a little bit more work on those, but we think we're starting to catch up and, and really streamline that. Yeah, so how does that work when, when the Asheville Accreditation Program is establishing rules for participation in CCRL's programs? Mm -hmm. How's that interaction work with CCRL? What's the collaboration like? Who's setting the, the rules here for, for when there are uh, proficiency samples required for CCRL? Is it CCRL? Or is it the accreditation program? Well, the, the accreditation program requires the participation, but what CCRL does is that they go off of the specifications for a material type. So they'll they'll look at, so we'll, we'll look at Portland. So the specification for Portland cement is C-150. And so what CCRL's program does is they'll look at C-150 and say, okay, these are all the tests that are that C-150 references for testing Portland cement. And then those tests are what they include in their proficiency sample program. So then what the accreditation program looks at is, okay, this lab is enrolled in that program. They're accredited for these test methods. So therefore they need to submit test data for the program, for the test methods for which they're accredited in that program. And, and the reason it's a little tough there is because there's three different cement testing programs. So there's Portland cement, there's masonry cement, and there's blended cement. So we don't know exactly what the laboratory is testing, except for based off of their PSP enrollment. So if they're enrolled in a specific program, we assume that they're doing testing on that per that specification. So then we require them to, to submit data for those accredited test methods. Yeah. Now, one question that that I think comes up sometimes is we've got the different cement types that CCRL offers, uh, and a lot of the tests are the same tests. Like a C109 is compressive strength for any type of cement. Who cares which one I'm running if I'm the laboratory? It's the same test. It's a cement, and I'm getting a test result. Why would I need to participate? in portland blended and masonry cement basically it's just, it's just the material type so since the material type is different it needs to be treated it needs to be treated differently some of them have different preparation methods or things like that for different material types and really we just review them independently based on the material type that's just how we do it that's not only for cement we also do that for asphalt mixture for the different compaction methods it's sort of the same thing yeah, but it, as the Ashto accreditation program, how do we know what the uh, expectation is for that laboratory? So we've got a cement laboratory. Let's say it's a, a laboratory that comes into the program for the first time. 
We know that they test cement. How do you know which cement programs they need to be enrolled in for maintaining their accreditation? That would be based exclusively on what test methods they were seeking accreditation for. So if everything they were seeking accreditation for was included in the Portland cement program, then they would only need need to be enrolled in the Portland program. But if they had a method that was included exclusively in the blended cement or the masonry cement program, which again would be based on the specification of those material types, then they would also need to be enrolled in those programs and not only submit test data for that one test, but also all the other tests in that program for which they're accredited. Because again, we assume that if they want that one test, it's because they're performing testing on that material type. So they need to run all of the tests in that material in that sample program. Okay, so if I'm coming into the program and I see that all the tests I want are included in blended cement, mm -hmm. then I only need to be enrolled in blended cement. Is that correct? correct? Correct. Now, when would I need to be enrolled or when would I when would you be checking my scores on other ones other than blended if if I already have everything I need in blended? Is there any risk for me enrolling in masonry cement or Portland cement samples? There is risk only because if you're enrolled in those programs, we're going to enforce the PSP ratings on those programs. So there there is a little bit of risk there, even if you're not performing that testing. If you just want to be enrolled in those programs, because since, again, we don't split out the accreditation by material type, we go off of the participation in the cement testing programs as sort of a tell of what the lab's performing testing on. So that's a little bit against what you, we had talked about earlier, that it, there wasn't any issue if you wanted to be enrolled in something on the AASHTO resource sample side. Is this a little bit different because we don't separate out the accreditation that way, that this is a little bit different than if you're, say, enrolled in a soil sample, but you don't are accredited for anything in soil? Yeah. And it's, so it doesn't matter. Well, it's a little bit different because what we talked about earlier was methods for which they weren't accredited. So, so sure, if they submit test data for a test on a CCRL sample that they're not accredited for, that still holds true. There's no risk to doing that. The risk really comes in if they're enrolled in a program that really they're not doing that kind of testing on that material type. We're still going to enforce enforce that there's accreditation um, uh, rules. Okay, so the difference there is because they are seeking accreditation for a specific test that is covered in multiple samples, yes. and that's more in the cement concrete kind of side where we don't have those issues or that instance on samples provided by Astro Resource. There isn't really an instance where the same test is in multiple samples or no. There is actually because uh, <laughs> in the logic is the same. So if you're looking at asphalt mixture testing, for example, you can run bulk specific gravity in the, the gyratory, the Veeam or the Marshall but we're not going to require you to enroll in all three of those. But if you were enrolled in them, we would expect you to get satisfactory ratings because you're accredited for bulk specific gravity. So the laboratory has to know what they really want to get out of the program. So it is the same logic. But like Joe said, if there was a test that wasn't in there, let's use the air voids, for example. We were talking about that earlier. Let's say that they weren't accredited for air voids and they were in Veeam and they were in Marshall we wouldn't be making sure that they were 
getting satisfactory ratings for Airvoids in the Marshall sample because they aren't accredited for it. And we, you know, but if they were, <laughs> then we then we would expect them to get satisfactory ratings for that result. It gets a little confusing because there are there are so many so many instances and so many variations depending on what somebody's enrollment is, what somebody's accredited for, what the specifiers expect them to do as well. That can play into it too. And I think cement is a very confusing area because of that, because of the discrepancy between what's offered, what's accredited. There, you know, we accredit for slag cement. There's no slag cement proficiency sample. We have that split out because CCRL splits it out and looks at it separately in their reports, but they don't do the same thing with masonry cement in the assessment report, but they have a separate proficiency sample program. Uh, so it, it is a little confusing. I think where we're going with this, with the accreditation program is probably eventually splitting it out into the different samples. So everything is a little bit more clear, but then all of a sudden you have another problem that you've created whereby you have all these tests that are the same test. And they're tested on a cement, which a cement essentially acts the same way, whether it's a masonry, Portland, or blended. You know, there's some little deviations as far as like mixture proportions or, or what it's used for, the chemical components used. But uh, essentially, it's kind of the same. So then you could get the question like, hey, why are you getting so into the details on this? Why isn't it just cement? And I think that's a fair question to ask. But we have had issues with what we're talking about right now, not having that specificity can also lead to other problems and confusion. Yeah, and, and I'll follow that up, Brian, by saying that the, the difference with the asphalt testing versus the cement testing. Um, so we'll talk about the compaction methods. So you have basically an overlying compaction method. method. You have gyratory, California needing compactor, or Marshall. And a laboratory's accreditation for that compaction method really determines what program they need to be enrolled in. Whereas on the cement side, there is no real overlying sort of method of accreditation that we can really rely on to see what program they need to be in. So at that point, we rely on their participation to enforce what they need to be testing. So if a lab's enrolled in Portland blended masonry, we assume that they're performing that testing and they're aware that they need to be enrolled in those for their specifiers. So we take action on any low ratings or non-participation in those samples. All right, Joe. So I have another one for you related to this. So asphalt binder is the asphalt version of, of cement, I guess. And there are a lot of different grades for asphalt binders and there's different uh, additives that are included and, and other other stuff that gets thrown into the mix. Do you, could you imagine us being in a situation where we would actually be specific about the grades that somebody is testing in our accreditation directory? Not currently. And the reason for that is, is for, for the proficiency sample program, we kind of have to go off of what we can get at the time to send to all of the participants in that program to perform that testing. So for us to break it out into different grades would one require us to really have to search for and spend a lot of time searching for those different grades of asphalt binder to be specifically tested and two, really have to 
expand our proficiency sample program into probably doing year-round binder programs because we would be doing so much of it. Yeah, I think uh, the the asphalt producers that are listening to this are probably nervous hearing <laughs> the prospect of that. That is not going to happen. The ASHTO accreditation program is not going to start accrediting based on grade. You know, I could see somebody saying, well, you know, maybe their equipment isn't doing so well at these different temperatures, but that just seems way too detailed uh, and way too in the weeds for accreditation as far as I'm concerned. One other question that we get from laboratories sometimes are about the type of proficiency samples that are sent out, particularly the soil types. Now, our proficiency sample program uh, is located in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. We have different soil types around there that are representative of the area. Uh, that may not re be representative of where those samples are shipped, though. The samples are shipped throughout the world. You know, it's not just different parts of the country. It goes every, all over the place. Are there any rules associated with uh, lack of familiarity? Because you may have some people who feel it's unfair to test a clay when they have never encountered a clay in reality in the soil types i've heard th this kind of feedback from people before could you envision any sort of policy related to that and, and if, if if not why not no we probably wouldn't shift any kind of policy for that and and i'd say that's because one we're looking for uniformities in in the sample to make sure everybody gets the same thing and and two a lot of our testing and especially a lot of the um, averages and standard deviations actually get used in, in the different standards to write the precision and bias statements. And typically they want those statements just to be very general and not for specific soil types and, and things. So no, I don't I don't see any kind of situation where we would start sending different soil types to different regions just for the sake of familiarity we, we would we would expect everybody to be able to perform a test proficiently with whatever material they got okay now let's say i no longer want to be enrolled in a sample or i no longer want to be performing a certain test should i just stop submitting data for that definitely don't just stop submitting data because if that happens for two sample rounds the accreditation will be suspended and even though and, and usually what happens then is the laboratory reaches out and says hey we don't we don't do this test anymore and then we just withdraw it but still there's that short-term period with the red on the page where the method was suspended so if you don't perform a test method you don't want to be accredited for it anymore but it's in your psp enrollment you know reach out to us and tell us you want to withdraw from that test method so we can go ahead and handle that before any kind of negative action takes place the other one i'll say is if you withdraw from a test method during an assessment that requires PSP participation and you also no longer want to stay enrolled in that program, also let us know that because we will not automatically withdraw you. And the reason for that is because there are a lot of laboratories that are just in the proficiency sample program. They don't seek accreditation. There's a lot of laboratories whose states require PSP enrollment, but not necessarily accreditation. So, so we don't assume anything 
So if you want to withdraw from a program as well, you definitely need to reach out to us because we won't automatically withdraw you. I will also say that it's important for laboratories to do that quickly so they're not invoiced for services that they don't need. So it's really a cost-saving thing as well as you don't want to be seen as suspended on your accreditation certificate or something like that. But you also don't want to be charged for services you don't need. <laughs> so yes, exactly. I think that's that's an important uh, part as well. So when as soon as you let the accreditation program know any changes what to withdraw or what to add is just so you can be invoiced correctly and only paying for what you really need. Yeah. yeah last aspect I want to talk about with these rules are uh, staff does have some latitude to get specific about what we convey and some of the details that we're talking about with these proficiency sample rules. Every line and every policy and guidance document is not approved by the ATG necessarily. We talk to the ATG about a lot of cases in a lot of situations and they provide us with guidance and then we prepare the policies according to what they want because we are providing this on their behalf. But there are certainly situations in these rules where if somebody were to challenge them, we would present them to the ATG and say, hey, what do you think? And they could have a ruling and, and there could be a change in the rules. But they, they rely on us to be responsible stewards of the accreditation program and operate on their behalf. Uh, so we do have some latitude, but when we say the ASHTO accreditation program, that is the whole outfit that includes the oversight committee. We do have another episode on that, but just sometimes I feel like people may not understand that full breadth of the accreditation program and how that's set up. I, I think you're right about that too, because there are times when people say, who gives you the authority to suspend my laboratory accreditation or require this and it's like well it's a whole like it's there's a whole system in place this is not the assessor didn't decide that this is what it's going to say in the standard and neither did the quality analyst neither did i it's it, there are all sorts of people involved and systems in place yeah i would i would follow that up that say these specific documents and rules and prerequisite rules and participation rules they're more guided by the standards, I think, especially the, the prerequisite rules. We're looking at the standards, what tests are required to perform another test or what specifications are required to perform a test. So that's really what we're looking at when setting these policies up. How often are these updated? Yeah, they're, they're updated regularly. Um, obviously, if there's a major, major update that needs to be made, we'll do it almost immediately. Like, uh, for example, we just switched from course aggregate and a fine aggregate program to a uh, aggregate degradation and aggregate gravity and gradation programs. So, you know, we did that pretty much right away after this last course aggregate report came out. But if there's just small editorial stuff or small sort of not insignificant, but things that don't really have a major impact, I'll, I'll kind of keep a running list of things that need to be updated and, and updated, you know, on a regular basis. Good point. Thanks, Joe, for pointing that out. And thank you for your time today. I know we, we took more time than I expected to going over this, but I appreciate it. I think it'll be time well spent for those listening to this. They'll understand why we have these rules and how they can be used. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. me. Um, definitely. This is a project that I work on regularly and am passionate about. So uh, if any of the listeners have any questions uh, specifically about these documents and want to reach out to me, feel free. Tori, would you like to say goodbye to all of our listeners? Bye. All right. <laughs>
Well, thank you, Tori. And if you want to reach out to Joe Williams with any questions, you can send him an email at jwilliams at ashtoresource.org. And of course, if you want to reach out to us about the podcast, let us know what you might want to hear about in a future episode or just give us some feedback on some of what we've been talking about over our various episodes. Send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resource's Twitter feed or go to ashtoresource.org.